0: We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created.
1: You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think.
2: Hi and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Start Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn and my regular host this week is Neil Bradley. Hi everyone. And we also have Laura in the studio. Hi. For a very uh, pertinent reason that will become clear. Um, This week we are extremely excited uh, to have a very special guest, uh, Robert M. Price or Bob, as we've just found out he prefers to be called. Uh,
0: I don't know if he prefers that. I would call him well, Professor.
2: Well, we can call him Professor, but uh, let me just get his, his description. <laughs> we'll ask him when I, when I finish with his, uh, his bio, basically. Uh, Bob is an American theologian and writer and former Baptist minister. He received a Ph.D. degree in systematic theology from Drew, Drew University in 1981 and another Ph.D. in New Testament in 1993. In the late 70s, he began to reassess his faith, deciding at length that traditional Christianity simply did not have either the historical credentials or the intellectual cogency its defenders claimed for it. He teaches philosophy and religion at the Johnny Coleman Theological Seminary and is professor of biblical criticism at the Center for Inquiry Institute. He eventually resigned his pastorate in 1994 and for six years with his wife led a living room church called the Grail. He lives in North Carolina, where he attends the Episcopal Church and, in his own words, keeps his mouth shut. Uh, Bob is the author of a number of books on theology and the historicity of Jesus, including Beyond Born Again, The Widow widow Traditions in Luke Acts, A Feminist Critical Scrutiny, Deconstructing Jesus, The Crisis of Biblical Authority, Jesus Christ Superstar, A Redactional Study of a Modern Gospel, the Da Vinci Controversy, and two of my personal favorites, uh, in part for their excellent titles, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man and The, uh, the Amazing Colossal Apostle. I love that. The search. Search, great title. The Search for the Historical Paul. Um, in 2005, Bob appeared in Brian Fleming's documentary film, The God Who Wasn't There, and he is the host of regular webcasts called uh, The Bible Geek, where he patiently answers listeners' questions. So you can check out his shows uh, and find out more about him at his website, which is robertmprice.mindvendor.com. So uh, I hope I got all that correct, uh, Bob. Uh, you're very welcome to the show.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks a bunch. Uh, by, by the way, I, I haven't gone to church in a few years now, though I still uh, love the Episcopal Church and I just sort of oh, lost
2: yeah? interest. Yeah well based on your on your work and your research i can i suppose that that's understandable
1: um, go ahead uh, it's also over twenty miles away, and there's gas to worry about
2: uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> gotta get your priorities right you know yeah, um,
0: anyway well i'm gonna i'm gonna just kick in here since um they were giving me 20 seconds to talk about something before we went on air, and I said I couldn't say anything in 20 seconds, and I guess our regular listeners probably know why I can never say anything in 20 seconds. Uh, but anyhow, I've got a whole slew of um, uh, Dr. Price's books, and uh, several of them are lent out to various other people and have not been returned to me, so I only have four here on the table, but I have a whole stack of printed Book reviews, because since I've been spending the last however many years it is reading everything available on the topic, uh, I I discovered these great reviews, and then I figured out, well, I can read the reviews, and then they'll tell me whether I need to read the book or not, Um. (laughs) save myself some time. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, makes sense.
0: Yeah, but, you know, it's it's, uh, pretty interesting. But anyway... What interests me as as a former fundee <clears throat> is uh, how painful was it for you to make your escape?
1: It uh, actually, well, let's see, I guess the uh, first emotional reaction I had back in 1977 when I began to uh, read the other side of apologetics, the the questions and answers that uh, my favorite apologists had never addressed, and uh, I began to realize that the arguments for uh, the historical Jesus, the reliability of the Gospels, the resurrection and all that, just did not hold water, in my opinion. I I began to feel a great indignation as if I'd been sold the Brooklyn Bridge, and I didn't think that uh, anybody had lied to me. I I still don't think that's the case. I I just figure that uh, people have a hard time thinking outside of the box as they say and uh, that that uh, deep down fundamentalist apologists are um, seeing uh, seeing uh, arguments and evidence as plausible based on how they comport with what they already want to believe and it's not that they're intellectually dishonest, but that uh they they just don't really see the big picture and If you begin to see it, you begin to realize gee I, i'm not at home with these people anymore, and I did feel like I'd kind of wasted some time, but you you know you gain Uh, from everything you learn, no matter how you learn from it. So I did feel indignation, and I had been afraid that if I lost my faith, all the things that uh, fundamentalists said would come true, that I'd find there was no meaning in life, etc. But once I decided, okay, that's it, Uh, I'm out of evangelicalism, I felt like I'd been born again hallelujah it was a, almost a surprise to me that uh, the uh, the faces of people in restaurants and on subways and so on it was it was entirely new and uh, the world seemed new and to open up to me and uh, I just uh, I guess I immediately found that it was a great exciting thing not an intimidating one so uh, got kind of mad for a while, but uh, and t- uh, I uh, hope I don't come across as um, like an anti-Christian fundamentalist. I know there are plenty of people that are, but I hope I, I've transcended that. I still have some venom for arguments that I think are stupid and uh, chicanery from apologists uh, where, where they really ought to know better. But uh, I take people as people, and so I, I can't really be quite as hot under the collar as some are. Well,
0: yeah, I understand that for sure. I'm currently reading Bruno Bauer, so he was hot, he was hot under the collar, I tell you. Oh, yeah. But, uh, uh. Yeah, but... Uh, it, did it happen like a switch, or did it take time? Was this uh, was this a process for you?
1: Uh, I think two things converged, but I uh, think it all sort of came to a head within a period of a few months. Uh, on the wow. one hand, I began to uh, read things that, uh, like uh, about uh, Sabbatai v the 17th century Messiah, who. Uh, committed apostasy, changed into, uh, under threat of death, he converted to Islam, and the the uh, this was very analogous to the crucifixion of Jesus, a, a disillusioning Messiah and the excuses his followers made and so on. Well, I could instantly see that uh, here, here was one single case, though there were others that debunked about everything. Apologists said, oh, this couldn't have happened uh, with Jesus. There wasn't enough time for legends to form and, uh, and so on and so on. And uh, so I I read uh, a bunch of this stuff and realized, geez, you know, it's it's just wrong what they say uh, could have happened and couldn't have happened. Uh, And uh, then secondly, I began to feel that the uh, evangelical born-again experience just was too limiting and was protracting my own personal immaturity. Because, of course, there's, there's, as you know, I'm sure they always say, look, don't wrestle with your problems, uh, leave them in the hands of God. And in the meantime, you just go out and be a good Christian. And I just, uh, I know big things happened, but I just began to see that that was restrictive. and fantastic that it involved viewing the world in essentially a superstitious way. You know, what is God trying to tell me by this minor nuisance or that life disappointment or whatever? And I thought, wait a minute, it, what, what am I thinking here? Is, is the world like a big Skinner box and God is the experimenter and I'm the, the rat or the pigeon who's being conditioned? It just seemed ridiculous. And I figured I needed to take responsibility for for myself and um, and so the, both these things kind of coincided though either one of them I suppose would have been enough to do the job but I think it really just was a matter of a few months really I guess a lot of things had been building, and I finally in uh, in the uh, sometime in nineteen seventy seven decided okay uh, that's it I'm not an evangelical it took me a while longer to decide i guess i'm not really a christian either though i i had great sympathy for liberal theologians like paul But I, I eventually figured like i uh i don't know if i can really count myself a believer in anything anymore
0: well one of the things that i observed in myself was that it, it took a long time uh it took me 20 years actually ah. uh step by step and uh it, uh, well, I was raising children at the time too, so I didn't have a lot of time to devote to it. Um, but what I noticed was that, um, you know, there were those moments that you have, you know, like these dark moments where you wonder, what if I've made the wrong choice? You know, what if, what is this going to come back and bite me? And then, you know, finally, I did get to the point where I realized that that was part of the programming itself and uh that when I was thinking that i was I was buying into it, so it it took me quite a bit longer and then you know so I was just curious t- to find out if if you'd been able to do it a little more quickly and more efficiently, of course, you had all of the uh theological education which I didn't have. I was more or less just a uh bible reader um uh, and and sort of a you know uh an amateur student.
1: Well, you know, I guess this kind of depends on how you want to cut the cake, uh, how you want to categorize it, because it, it had been at least a few more years where even as an aspiring apologist I was more and more tormented by doubt and afraid my faith might not prove true. Uh, the great irony with apologetics and defending the faith is that once you start to do that, Uh, simple faith is no longer possible if you have to rely on probabilistic arguments that you can show that it's the most likely hypothesis that Jesus really rose from the dead and all that stuff. I mean that's the way they argue. You uh, begin to realize, well, even if this is the most likely hypothesis, if that's all it is, uh, I could still be wrong, and it wasn't really a question of faith anymore. And I wanted to believe, but uh, now was uh, it backfired on me? So that was building for a few years. Uh, so yeah, maybe I, yeah, in those terms, I, it did take a bit long.
0: I mean, look at I, look at this poor guy, Bart Ehrman. You know, you read his book, God's Problem, and he, uh, you know, he he he's so touchingly portrays, you know, his angsting over his dissatisfaction with God's solution to you know the world's problems, and yet he turns around and writes something like, you know, the search the, the historical Jesus, and, and then you go say what, you know, what happened? I mean. Uh He he was going in such a good direction. (laughs) What happened here?
1: And he still is going in that direction. I think with him, uh, I'm I'm no mind reader, but uh, it seems to me that he has two things going on. He uh, decided he couldn't believe anymore and makes no bones about it, and feels more liberty to call a spade a spade, like when he says, uh, let's face it, uh, pseudepigraphy, uh, pseudonymous Biblical writings were pious frauds and forgeries, and there's a a refreshing honesty about that. But on the other hand, when something else comes up, and uh, like the Christ myth theory, he seems very reluctant to buck the conventional view. Uh, he's now he went from fundamentalism to being a, a good member in standing of the uh, the, the critical scholarship. Uh, establishment, and if you say something like, you know, I think Jesus probably didn't exist, you're automatically considered a lunatic. And I I think that that's kind of what happened. He got out of one plausibility structure, one peer group of believing Christians, into another one that he perceived as its opposite, the critical scholarly guild, and uh, and his loyalty to that, I think. Uh, Again, I'm just Kind of surmising makes him suddenly seem to shift his ground. Like uh, Jesus, the Gospels are unreliable enough to help convince him that Christianity isn't true, or at least belief in it is arbitrary. Uh, But if you uh, say that, uh, well, maybe Jesus didn't even exist. Well, wait a minute—that's that's that's, uh, a fringe view, and he's. and suddenly, the evidence looks better. That at least the evidence is good enough to show that there was some kind of a Jesus, and and that is a, certainly a, a fair view. Uh, I'm not saying that's a crazy view, uh, but I I think that's kind of what's happening. He's it's a matter of relativity. Not enough gospel evidence to say what Jesus was. Uh, Really like, or at least that he was like the Christian Savior, but certainly enough to say that he wasn't a myth. And I, I naturally think he's uh, not seeing the evidence accurately, but that's in the eye of the beholder, too.
0: Well, I think he gets lost in the in the trees and doesn't see the forest. I mean, that's just my opinion. Uh, because you know, after you read Tom Brody and you read uh, uh, McDonald. And, you know, some of these other guys that, you know, that show you how these texts were created and the models that they were based on and how they were put together. And and, and you just realize there was no freaking story to begin with. They they made one. Mm-hmm. And if you come to that conclusion, which I did, um, then it's basically you have to just completely throw that out. And then what you're left with is can you find any trace of a Jesus-like figure in historical writings that are not about Jesus. And, and I mean, there's not much to go with there. I mean, you've got Josephus and you've got Philo and you've got uh, uh, Tacitus and you've got um, possibly, you know, Paul and some of the earlier so-called Christian literature that was pre-Christ as far as that goes. And you don't find much. I mean, it's like this, this character was – has it was created.
1: Yeah, you don't even really have Josephus even, and, and if you did, well, it's weird enough that uh, he would simply be reporting on what Christians in his day believed. Uh, there's no way, even if he actually wrote the famous testimonium flavianum, that he was a reporter on the scene or had any personal re- uh re- Well, well,
0: obviously, yeah, obviously, that's that's uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's a big fraud. But I think that there was a text about something that that replaced, but it just wasn't, you know, something about some Jesus. You know, it was just uh, Joseph is, of course, you know, had a lot of stuff to cover up. He was as busy covering and blowing smoke as he was, you know, being truthful. But um, I have read through those texts carefully more than once i've got numerous annotated copies and i think there are traces of something that was going on but it's not what we call christianity and it wasn't about some guy named jesus there was a lot of different people so yeah
1: yeah judas the magician judas of galilee menachem and so on and so on
0: and then there was that, that great Jesus, you know, right there at the end, you know, that was going around, woe is Jerusalem, woe is Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, that, that story is just, that's killer. <laughs> no pun intended.
1: Uh, yeah, it but, does appear that that was known to the gospel writers and that they've adapted that to uh, the story of Jesus because, as you say, there are so many parallels. So you say well, you don't have a degree in this area. No cuz you sound like you do and maybe if you have the time and money uh you, that that would be great you'd really enjoy the uh, all the grants well I I, and
0: so on. I I have the time and i have the money and i've been doing the studying and i probably have 10,000 volumes in my library so i'm i'm reading pretty pretty thoroughly and i i unfortunately i don't speak or read greek or german or latin but well, i have they dictionaries have
1: courses, uh, in these programs hmm. to, uh, learned it well enough and uh, obviously it's none of my business but you you obviously have such a grasp of the thing and and enough interest in it uh you you might really enjoy the uh, the whole thing and then winding up the at the end of it. Can
2: they do they do on online courses?
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I places Fr- probably do.
0: Yeah, they, I'm in France, you know, so it's oh. it's kind of hard hard to I mean we we are in France at the moment. That's oh. At this very moment, uh, yeah.
2: Can I mean, I, I I enjoy listening to to people who are heavily involved in this topic uh, discussing it. It's interesting, but um, well, but just, we're boring you. What, not boring me. I'm just thinking in terms of our listeners. If I'm trying to formulate some kind of more basic questions, you know, that get us back to the beginning. I want you know?
0: to talk about Tacitus and his uh, eighteenth well, book. Okay. Well, can, can we say? <laughs> yeah,
2: can we say what our premise is first? What is our premise?
0: What is our premise?
2: Uh, well
0: well the the, no the, the whole Jesus. the whole premise is is that Jesus was a myth right, and that uh, whether or not there were any actual characters uh in history as that is historical characters who in whole or in part contributed to the structure of that myth mm-hmm. uh, is kind of the question i mean the myth right. there, there's some uh, Jesus is a myth people who say there was nothing nowhere it was all made up. Uh, I see, I see Jesus in so many texts, you know, I mean, I could go through the, I could go through the Gospel of Mark and I could show you exactly where everything came from, you know, one text or another, because I've got all of this classical literature in my head before I even started the biblical literature. So, I mean, I, I can, t- I can tell you where the story uh, that follows the testimony of Flaviano, there's two stories, you know, that, that cool little, those two stories, Um uh, about Paulina. With her husband, yeah. Saturninus, and the other one about Fulvia and the, the four Jews, one and three. You know, the, the first story uh, is based on a tale that occurred in 58 AD, and it was in Tacitus. And, uh, you know, I mean, Josephus probably didn't use Tacitus, but he certainly knew the tale. Because you know, it was a big scandal. It was a big uh, murder scandal so uh it's interesting to see it reformulated and according to you know fairly standard mythical norms right there in uh, following that tale so it's almost like josephus Josephus knows he's blowing smoke because he's making stuff up so what is he trying to say? why is he using the name Paulina? Why does he use the name Decius when uh, Decius was uh, a family of ancient Roman heroes who uh, perform what they call devotio, you know, sacrifice themselves on the battlefield to, to win the battle to save their their people. You know, I mean what's he trying to tell us there? And 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 here's this, this noble Roman named Paulina who sells herself out to the Egyptian religion, you know, or, or something in the guise of your Egyptian religion, but it's really just a whoredom. And how do the how do the Jewish uh uh writers think about whoredom? I mean whoredom is whoring after other gods, you know. So I mean Josephus is telling us something
1: yeah okay. fascinating you know i think so, but, similarly go oh, ahead i'm sorry
0: no i was just going to say we're we're not supposed to let me talk here you're supposed to be talking
1: so oh, i like learning too uh,
0: well anyway um i want to talk about your book a little bit the case against the case for christ ah because like i said i love that book <laughs> <laughs> at least strobe god <laughs>
1: Yeah, a funny was... thing happened with that uh, i 've never met him though I was at a conference he attended, but i didn't run into him but uh there was one being planned about the atonement in some church i think in in the midwest where it, it was uh like all every conceivable perspective on the the idea of the atonement of Christ and they asked if i could deal with it from a mythicist perspective and so i wrote up this thing called uh, the mythic power of the atonement and uh, and so uh, lee strobel was supposed to be there and he was the big draw they figured that uh, if anybody would attract uh, attendees he would i'm sure that's correct and uh, uh, so there were there were a lot of people on there well he heard that I was invited to appear there, and even though they assured him we would not be on the stage together, he insisted that it was some sort of an ambush and that they were going to try to embarrass him with me somehow, so he pulled out of the thing and it collapsed, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, he was terrified. Uh, <laughs> tell, tell,
0: tell the readers who he is. Tell the readers who he is and what his position is. I have the readers, the listeners, let everybody know who this Lee Strobel is.
1: He uh, was a reporter, and he sets himself up in this book as uh, – a converted skeptic and that he, uh, he got interested in the whole thing because his wife became a born-again Christian and he had to decide whether he thought this was true or not. Of course, th- that already makes you suspect he's looking for reasons to switch over but he says he he uh made this list of experts on early Christianity in the New Testament and went to uh to interview them all and each chapter is devoted to a different interview and he summarizes the uh what the, the person said with lots of quotes and and in the end he says that yeah this really shows that uh Christian there was is Jesus
0: And all of them were apologists, right?
1: Yeah, every stinking one of them. There was no attempt to speak with uh, John Dominic Cross or Bart Ehrman or or any of these people. I mean there are so many, as you know, that he could have sought out, and they would have gone along with him. I mean these people often – have friendly debates and and symposia with conservatives like N.T. Wright and so on, he he would have had no trouble, but he just went after people that would uh, try to prove to the reader through him that uh, that born again evangelical Bible believing Christianity was true. I mean, that's the real issue. Of course, he's saying it was simply a historical question, but it's obvious he's misrepresenting the whole thing. He went in just to uh, make a case, not to find out anything. And uh, so there's a there's a, a basic dishonesty uh, in in the approach. Now, like going back to what I said before, I, I don't necessarily think. Uh, he's trying trying to pull some sort of a scam. I, I'm I'm sure he he sees himself as having done this, but he's too interested in the issue and uh, to to see what what's happening. And, uh, and the result is that it's a pathetic collection of. Bad arguments from people who are axe grinders, and uh, the and the, this book is enormously popular. They give it out in Billy Graham rallies and so on, and people figure, okay, well these people have proven this. I don't need to doubt anything, and it's it's just in effect, if not intent, a con job. And that's the only reason I get involved in these debates. I don't care what anybody believes. It's none of my business. But I I do know something about the New Testament. Or Early Christianity, and I just can't sit back and, and let uh, this this baloney uh, go forth and deceive people. If I can have any dissenting voice,
2: well, I find it interesting that uh, when anybody does that, that's happened on, on in many different uh, on many different occasions with different people in different spheres of uh, of research and um, and interest, where they. Uh, where well, they're going to talk or they're invited to talk at a, at, a, at a conference and they hear that someone else with an opposing view is coming along and they do exactly what you, this guy said when he heard that you were coming, uh, that he said that it was going to be some kind of ambush and he would be embarrassed. Well, what was he expecting, that you call him names or something? Obviously, the only I'm embarrassment scared. is – well, the embarrassment was that what you were going to say, he knew what you were going to say and he knew that what you said uh, refuted or, or, or proved false his entire thesis – so it's an admission almost when people do that that their yeah. own argument is very shaky. Right. Yes. Exactly. And they don't believe it even.
0: Well, that's the whole problem with Christianity and apologetics. The very fact that most writing about Christianity is uh, apologetic just tells you how shaky the whole thing is. You have to have apology for it. I mean,
2: yeah. Right, right word. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's like a it's like crazy, and uh, and it's been that way from. I mean, when they started translating the Bible and letting people read it, um, that's when people started asking questions and and people started saying, well, you know, wait a minute, you know, something is wrong with this picture. Because up until that point, you know, the priests had all the power, they they interpreted it for you. And we have kind of an ongoing thing here uh, in our house because uh, quite a few of our household are uh, former Catholics. And then, of course, there's some of us, uh, yours truly, who are former fundies and Protestants. So there's you know, really very different points of view of, of, of your early childhood programming. The Catholics never read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Fundies always do. They just don't know what they're reading.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a whole different book. That just <laughs> astonished me ever since I got into the critical study of the Bible. It's not the same book I thought it was, and then it's far more interesting now. Well, I'll tell
0: you, one of the, there were two things that were like big turning points for me because, you know, I was a very sincere Christian and I really wanted to understand. It. I mean, this is the word of God, right? I want to know what God says to me. You know, I, w- I really want to know it. I want to, I want to get behind these words, right? Which means I want to know. I mean, words are important. So I wanted to read about Bible itself, you know the context, you know all the studies, and and somewhere along the way, very very early, this was years ago, I read the startling declaration that the last several verses of the book of Mark were not considered to be original, and I said, "What? Yeah. <laughs> that was that was really shocking." I mean, I mean, it's worse than that, but for me, that was the first really big shock, mm. and and I uh, I went to a Bible study class at my church, and I. And I'm sitting there with my King James version, you know. And by this time, I had a, I had acquired and amplified, wow. and I pointed out I, I pointed out to the to the uh, pastor. I says, you know, it says here that these verses, you know, what sixteen, seventeen, whatever, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. This is, you know, it says here that these aren't original. And, I mean, he practically shouted at me, you know. And he took his King James Version, waved it up in the air. It was one of those floppy kinds, you know, that it flapped when he waved it. And he was waving it in the air. I don't know what you're reading and what kind of the devil and blah, blah, blah. But this is King James Version. It's the only undefiled, pure, true word of God and blah, blah, blah. And 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 then he started going like, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then all the people in the... And the group, they all start raising their hands, waving around, hallelujah, you know. And, I mean, I just sat there and I thought, what the heck? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And the irony is some of the earliest textual critics were themselves what we would call fundamentalists, uh, conservative evangelicals, or whatever, in the 19th century. And some, uh, one I forget which one was uh, maybe Trigellis was actually Plymouth Brethren. And these oh, guys Lord. saw that if you wanted to believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, you you better find out what it actually said. And, and what had been added. And so, the, you know, you could take that a very different way, it, precisely because you believe in the verbal inspiration. This King James fetish is so bizarre, it's even uh, an embarrassment to, uh, I guess, most conservatives, though on a popular level, who knows. But I, I think the uh, the sales of things like the New International Version of the Bible have kind of swamped King James now, but still, I mean, you used to have people saying, uh, "If the King James is good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's
0: good enough for me." Oh my <laughs> God, that's, that's hilarious! Well, yeah, there's another true. one. Is it even better? You, you remember Herbert W. Armstrong? Oh yeah. Well, he used to listen to sermons on the radio, and he preached a sermon once about Paul's uh, uh, ship journey to Rome. And the storm, and there's a verse in there that says that they, for that the ship fetched a compass, until they, you know, until the storm died down, and basically, and he launched off on this whole thing about what happened was, was Paul had the good sense to go down into the cabin and get the compass out to show the way to sail the ship until they came safely to shore. And I just happened to know that the term in Elizabethan English "fetch a compass" meant to sail in a circle. You know, if you're in a storm, you just sail in a circle. You don't want to get on the, on the rocks. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, this guy—the words say "fetch a compass," but they mean sail in a circle. And this man is preaching an entire sermon based on a false interpretation of these words. And it just—it just flabbergasted me. I mean, I was just. I was really hostile about it.
2: Well, well, isn't the problem, isn't that an example of the problem that it's about belief and not about facts? And this is the, the division between, uh, you know, honest, let's say, uh, sober biblical scholars and the people who maybe also might be biblical scholars, but who are believers, that one group belief above everything else. Uh, and that's fundamentally emotional. And other people put facts and hard data above everything else. I
1: think yeah, that's well. true. And you don't want to – I mean, if you think you've got the truth already, it's a waste of time looking for the truth. And so what do these apologists do? Uh, wh- what are they doing? They're, they're really trying to combat critical scholarship. They're not participating in it. They just want to try to re- turn the clock back uh, to, uh, to pre-critical times, and they adopt the – the pose of being New Testament critics in order to to enter into the dialogue. So there's a kind of a basic... Fraudulence again. It's in a sense, it's self-deception because it's it itself is a case of the warping of logic because of where you start. You you don't realize you're not standing in in a vacuum. You're already engaged uh, in in the issues. And the the relevance of the King James fetish uh, thing is is not just that it's bizarre, though that's fascinating enough, but it shows how, like you say. Belief is a big package. You, you, um, whatever setting in which you get converted to to Christianity in this case you buy the whole package that the minister, the priest, the evangelist whoever says and uh, they are the one that shared the gospel with you and you accepted that so you're not liable to question anything they say about the mode of baptism should it be adult or infant sprinkling or immersion etc. or uh, the tribulation as the rapture going to come at the beginning of the tribulation or the end of it you're going to have brand loyalty. You're going to take unquestioningly what the preacher says, because it's it all stands or falls together psychologically. Not logically, but psychologically. Because the the manner in which you believe any of it uh, is, uh, again, all or nothing. If you begin to say, well, I, it's really up to me to decide what I think. Again, faith goes out the window. You, you now, uh, you, mm-hmm. you're back where you didn't want to be. I don't want to have to decide these things. I'm a mere mortal. How can I ever know? I want somebody to say, here it is, here's an infallible revelation, just believe this. Great. That's what you want. And if if you even have to say, well, how do I know that the snake handling, poison drinking at the end of the Gospel of Mark was originally part of the text? Gee, if I admit that's a good question, it won't be long before I'm asking, well, how do I know any of the other material in the first 15 chapters of Mark uh, is original to the text. Or if it is, how do I know it really happened? Did Jesus really say any of these things? You don't want to go there. You want to just believe what the magic book says, and that amounts to believing what the authority figure told you it says.
0: Well, speaking of authority figure, have you by any chance come across the work of Bob Altemeyer on the authoritarians? Uh, no, it's new to me. Well, Bob is a clinical psychologist, research psychologist, actually, and uh, I think it was what, University of Ottawa, maybe or yeah. Ottawa or he's totally Canadian. Like and he did some work on what what's called the authoritarian personality, and uh, it's it's a very interesting. You can find it. He even has his book free online if you just type in the authoritarians Altemeier, Altemeyer, A L T E M E Y E R. And, uh, but he did another, uh, study and he does these, uh, really, really fascinating studies because, you know, every semester he had a whole fresh new bunch of students to, to be his guinea pigs and, you know, giving them all kinds of little questionnaires and getting all kinds of data. But he did one on, and he wrote a book about it called Amazing Conversions. And it's about people who were brought up in strongly religious backgrounds and then freed themselves from their uh, belief system and also people who were brought up in say you know an atheistic home and later converted to some kind of uh, Christianity or usually fundamentalist and he had s- these were really good studies you really ought to look into them because he came to some amazing conclusions uh, that not title to worry. Does
1: ring a bell the amazing conversion I wonder if I did read that long ago it doesn't matter i've forgotten it apparently i'm definitely going to look into that
0: yeah because there's one thing that comes out of that uh that really is is a very important thing i think and i and it helps me to stay sane when i read some of these things and it's that people who have this type of personality and it's a f- fairly large segment of the population um, they actually if you try to convince them of something with facts uh, against the system of beliefs that they are brought up on it doesn't matter how intelligent they are how many degrees they are they have or you know how long they've been teaching or any or how many research papers they've done doesn't matter If you try to present them with just plain uh, untinged facts, it causes Brain pain, and there are studies that show the places that fire in the brain that cause this pain. It actually hurts them. It it physically hurts them, wow. and they will do anything to avoid this pain. And there's a, a really good study on that also, where they did these um, where they did these scans. So it's um,
2: they did yeah. There's another study where they took uh, people with uh, strong political beliefs in the U.S., for example, Republican versus Democrat. These were diehard, you know, uh, believers in, in the party. And when they showed them um, about a candidate, for example, that they really liked from their party, when they showed them uh, data, hard data that they themselves wouldn't be able to ignore or, or dismiss, uh, that this candidate was not the wonderful person that they that these people thought he or she was, and... Um, the the logical conclusion was that they would, this person would be diminished, the candidate would be diminished in their eyes, and they would think less of them, and they might start to question. In fact, what happened was that afterwards, when they were interviewed, they came across as believing more fervently in the goodness of this person, that they had just seen evidence was not such a good person. Now, that just beats everything. I don't know what to do in that situation when if, if human beings are wired that way, you can't,
0: yeah, it. that, that's one of the things we we uh, take into consideration a lot. And I think a lot of the the people for I mean, there's there's certain personality types. We did a lot of research into that at one point. And a lot of the authors, I mean you can see you can see the signs in the text themselves, you know, of the uh, personality malformations of these authors. And then and then they write things that are so they seem to be so compelling and they, they wrap you up in their words, you know, it's what I call kind of like, you know, solid shooter metaphysics. And they, they, they wrap you up in these words and they take you into a maze and then you become convinced and you believe and, 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 uh, yet if you read carefully and you take the sentences apart one by one, you find out that there's nothing there. It's all air. And, uh, you know, so you, you know that there is a personality malformation because there are also st- studies that that uh, demonstrate that how people use words, you know, what, what they say and how they speak and what they talk about and how they think represents their inner landscape. And when you read these texts, the inner landscape of the person writing them, I mean, think about that uh, little text in the, jeez, I, I don't even remember which book, Ezekiel maybe? Where it says, you know, you're whoring after um uh talking about people of Israel. Uh, you're whoring after other guys, and basically saying, you know, you're you're lusting after donkeys and being filled with the semen of stallions. I mean, <laughs> good God. I mean, what kind of mind would write stuff like that? And people consider that holy scripture. <laughs>
1: Well, yes, though some of it is so weird, I, I, it's like the <laughs> compass thing, I, like the thing with, the, uh, Insects with four legs in Deuteronomy. Nobody could be stupid enough to make that mistake, and and I figured, how could this be even an error? And somebody pointed out that it may just be a matter of ancient taxonomy that they were thinking that the huge uh, bow legs of a grasshopper weren't considered legs; they were something else. And I, uh, well, that that almost has to be true. So sometimes that <laughs> the thing like that may. Uh, be uh well there was just a story the other night on some guy that was uh, having sex with a horse and uh, he claimed he was in the Uh barn just because it was cold outside who knows how widespread some of these utterly weird things were or lot you know the, the righteous lot is willing to hand over his virgin daughters to this howling mob at the door how could the Bible writer thought this guy was righteous well because they had this different bunch of priorities that as terrible as that is it would have been even worse to uh, turn over someone you had given refuge to and we wouldn't look at it that way but they do so sometimes it's just that it's so other so alien that uh, but even at that you gotta ask am I gonna take a text like this as my moral standard
0: exactly Uh,
1: Sheesh. I mean, the very that's, thing that makes it seem not insane proves how unacceptable it is.
0: Mm. Exactly. And that's, that's my whole point. We're talking about texts that in no way, shape, form or fashion should ever have been considered to be, you know, Holy Scripture. And and then you read these things like, what's his name, Russell Gmerkin and his Genesis and uh, what was it? It was... Um, Eraerosus and genesis and um Manitho and Exodus, yeah you know he pretty much pr- proves that the whole the whole thing was put together like something like one seventy two b c or yeah yeah one yeah one seventy two b c and well, uh well on on that point let me just go
2: back to the basics a little bit here um obviously we're talking about uh, in a fundamental way the idea that jesus as a historical figure was the basis for kind of Christianity, or at least the New Testament, et cetera, is, um, is a fictional char- character that he didn't exist as he's described or as the way people who believe the Bible believe he did. Um, that, that idea has gained a lot of traction, uh, maybe just in recent years or decades, particularly because of uh, the kind of work of, um, people like Bob and other biblical scholars and critics. Um, but is it a case? Is that is that the end of the story? Because I know a lot of people who would who are you know either relapsed Catholics or whatever who who don't believe anymore. And when they talk about religion, they'll they'll say, "Well, there's no evidence for the existence of Jesus." You know, they've they've, they've switched basically. But they leave it there. They don't have anything. They don't. They've no awareness that there may be, there may have been something around that time when the Bible was kind of put together and all of the, these things were being talked about and these different characters were around, that is it a case that there was something, there was there is some religion that could be used to, kind of could be rehabilitated to replace the current Christianity and Jesus, for example? That's a question from Bob. <laughs> no, that's what I'm wondering. Is there anything, I mean, is it just a matter of Jesus didn't exist that it's all a big hoax? End of story.
1: Uh, <sighs> Go ahead. Uh, the issue is whether there whether you need a historical figure for something like this because there were religions of salvation with dying and rising saviors in the immediate vicinity and had been for hundreds of years before Christianity, like the Osiris and Baal religions, and uh, right. and, and other ones, and probably Attis and Adonis and. Tammuz and all these guys, they probably involved a death and resurrection myth. Well, uh, uh, the you, nobody thinks there was a, and there's no reason to think there was a historical Adonis or Osiris, though uh, some in the ancient world thought so, like Plutarch thought that Isis and Osiris must have been an ancient queen and king of uh, Egypt. That's what we call euhemerism, uh, that uh, Gee, they're like in all these vampire movies, they say, well, all these legends uh, really have a historical core. Well, no, mm. they don't. And uh, But that was the assumption, and it seems to me that's very likely what the deal is with Jesus. And even the evidence of Jesus-like historical figures uh, can be taken two ways. Like the, the great book um, – by s G. F. Brandon, uh, the Fall of Jerusalem and the Origins of the Christian Church I think that 's the title or is later when Jesus and the zealots he He shows how similar in some respects the story of Jesus, at least the passion narrative is to the stories uh, from josephus of simon Bargioris and and people like that and to down to really surprising details and of course, the Jesus Ben Ananias uh preaching the doom of Jerusalem they bring him before the the Sanhedrin and then the Roman procurator and uh and the even the dialogue is kind of like in the gospels so forth and so on. Well, the, so does that mean that if the Jesus story is a lot like these, that it may originally have been the same sort of thing, a revolutionary prophet? It might. It does lend a kind of verisimilitude to it. But on the other hand, the stories are so close, I kind of think it's more likely that uh, these. These stories have rubbed off on the the story of Jesus. It's like when Simon goes into the temple uh, during the Roman siege. He he and his uh, troops go into the temple to... Uh, to flush out the uh, the zealots, a rival revolutionary group, and the temple establishment is uh, negotiates with them to go in and do it and get rid of these guys. And so when he comes into the city, there is a triumphal entry, and he manages to get rid of the zealots, and though, of course, he could be considered one, too, but he gets rid of these guys and cleanses the temple uh, of them. And so you begin to wonder, wait wait a second, how often did this kind of thing happen uh, with such parallels? And it, that uh, so I begin to think, was Jesus another one like this, or has the story of Jesus been mixed with these? And and I think the latter is even hinted at in the Gospels in Mark 13 and the parallels, the Apostles. Apocalyptic discourse. When it says, uh, when the Son of Man comes, it'll be like lightning going from one horizon to the other. And uh, so when people tell you, oh, he is in the inner chamber, or he's out in the wilderness, let's rally to him, don't believe it, for many will come in my name. I think that implies... Like, you don't tell people not to do something they're not doing already. And it seems to me that implies that there was a tendency even then to mix Jesus up with Simon Bargioris and these other messianic pretenders. So is that evidence for a revolutionary Jesus? It might be, but it may just be a, a coloring an originally mythic narrative, which is what I think, but who knows?
0: You know what I think? I think... The original model for
1: Jesus was Julius Caesar. Uh, that has been argued. Some have said Augustus Caesar, but yeah, there's, uh, mm-hmm. that could well be
0: the ultimate betrayal—the assassination. Mm. I mean, the triumphal entries, you know, the the miraculous battles—everything Caesar did. You know, I mean, all, all we know about Caesar comes through the highly distorted lens of Cicero and the so-called Republicans but you got to remember those people were not, were oligarchs you know they were the wealthy elite they were not the masses of people who began their worship of Caesar immediately upon his death I mean when you read uh uh Suetonius' version of his funeral I mean it's it's all right there and I, there, there's this guy called Frans, Francisco or yeah Francisco Carrada who wrote a book called um Jesus was Caesar. I think was just the title of the book.
1: Yes, I heard of he, that one. Yeah.
0: And it, it, I would like you to review that one. Really, I mean, it's it's a very tedious book. I really had a hard time reading it. uh I, I think it would be really nice if somebody who could put all that together and you know <laughs> would read it and review it for me. <laughs> mm.
1: <laughs> Tell me what I'm
0: supposed to learn from that book. <laughs>
1: It would really be interesting to compare that with Margaret Morrison's book Uh Jesus Augustus. Uh, I have read it in manuscript, I don't think it's been published yet, and um Joseph Atwill's Caesar's Messiah, and I think there's even other ones as well that uh, mm. that make a sense I
0: read Atwell. I, I, I read Atwill. Well, I think his problem was was that he he failed to understand that the reason there is so much similarity between the gospels and acts and things in josephus is because the gospels and acts were borrowing heavily from josephus right. oh, yeah. <laughs> i mean that's that's the, the simplest solution i mean if josephus was what you know nine, 90 or something mm-hmm. uh and then if uh, acts didn't come along until say 125 or 30 and uh you know, I mean they they borrowed heavily.
1: Yeah. I mean I think you don't
0: so. you don't hear anything about any any gospels at all for a very long time and mm-hmm. the first time you ever hear anything about a, a, a historical Jesus is when Ignatius says, Oh yeah, you know, he was uh uh he he was a guy, he lived in Nazareth, his mother's name was Mary and his father's name was Joseph, and he was really alive and he had an agenda to say that. Mm-hmm. So I think they just took that and ran with it, even though Uh, According to, um, what's his name, that nice nice guy, Rene Salm, a Nazareth didn't exist at the time. So he just got everything wrong.
1: Yeah, Uh, of course, Atwill's theory is that Josephus and uh, the four evangelists were all in cahoots, like a kind of a writing staff or a TV sitcom. And right. <laughs> you're supposed to read all of the Gospels and uh, the Jewish Antiquities and Jewish Wars and all that as as one big text, uh, which seems a little uh, unlikely to me. And uh, he he's he's really ingenious, but I find the whole thing pretty unconvincing. Though uh, Morrison's view is is doesn't go into that kind of uh, wackiness, but it's interesting that there are. Uh, different approaches sort of converging almost yeah and
0: there's another one um what okay there's at and then there's this guy that uh what is his name he wrote one where he is certain that uh, judas the galilean was the model for jesus
1: oh yeah yeah
0: And he talks about the Golden Eagle temple cleansing that happened in 4 BC uh, right before the death of Herod Mm. as being the temple cleansing. And then, of course, there's this big controversy over, uh, you know, between John's gospel and the synoptics as to whether the temple cleansing occurred at the beginning of Jesus' career or at the end. And then there's these, you know, various Judases that reappear throughout Josephus. So, yeah, there's that.
2: So here I have another question. Um, so, Bob, what you were saying more or less was that you know the ideas promoted by or presented in the Bible, Jesus, the dying and rising again, God, etc., that all existed for a long time before the supposed time of Jesus. So, it's it's not really it's not really necessary in that sense that that um, uh, that the Bible, to a certain extent, already existed. But my question is, why? What would your answer be, or explanation be, to, as to why uh, none of those other uh, traditions, spiritual traditions, previous that you that you mentioned, why none of them were taken and crafted into what we have today? How did it come about that this, maybe just one of many spiritual traditions? Uh, at that time that existed why was one taken and, and and why do we have what we have today as a result of that
0: in other words how come it came to dominate like it
2: has yeah. who did it who done it
0: who
1: done it <laughs> <laughs> well um, remember uh, Heliogabalus uh, the, one of the Roman emperors who was the, the wackiest one of the bunch he made Baalism the religion of the Roman Empire uh, for, for a while uh, and uh, Mithraism was Fantastically popular uh, among uh, Romans and uh, the Roman soldiers, especially. But I believe he was the official uh, god uh, for a while, and uh, his we found like some like 400 Mithraea, these grotto chapels in Britain alone uh, in in general early Christian times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the religion of Isis and Osiris was wildly popular all over the Mediterranean, and um, it seems like uh, various people, like including Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, but also e. R. Dodds in his uh, Pagan and Christian in an Age of Anxiety, they point out various Purely secular sociological factors that probably help explain it. Number one uh, is that uh, the rate of growth was not as as spectacular as these movies shown around Easter time would imply. That uh, if that um, you can show the the same basic uh, exponential, but slow, if that makes any sense. I mean, gradual, but uh, more and more and more uh, members for the Unification Church and Mormonism in the same amount of time. Uh, And uh, so then you have to ask, well, why are these successful too? So it needn't some supernatural impetus. But uh, another thing is that Christianity was more exclusive than the others that you could join any number of mystery cults as they were called salvation religions at the same time so as to hedge your bets one of them ought to work Uh, and uh, this was like a kind of divided portfolio the more you invested in the less benefit you got from any one of them and the less confidence you had in any one of them so if somebody worked but the, the Christians said no 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 you You can't go to those other groups and and be a christian it's It's us or any and all of them. Well, that meant just demographically that anybody any time somebody converted from these other religions to Christianity, several religions lost a member, and Christianity gained one so it's mm. a kind of an asymmetrical membership progress. Another thing was, like Tertullian had said, the um, famous martyrdoms. The, we probably overestimated how many martyrdoms there were, but still, uh, that put an interesting face on Christianity because people said, hey, "These people aren't kidding. You know, what is it that they're so uh, that they find so worthwhile that they're willing to die for it?" And, and like. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they try to stamp it out, the more it grows. That seems to be true. Um, then also the uh, the opposition Christians apparently alone, uh, Christians and Jews, had to uh, infanticide and abortion uh, helped uh, swell their numbers because they uh, had a lot more girls to uh, feed and, and marry off and there weren't enough Christian men for all of them, so often the women would marry uh, pagan husbands and uh, they would, uh, for obvious reasons like Lee Strobel, uh, they would uh, <laughs> convert and uh, so you, you had like missionary dating and uh, so that, that had uh, a good bit to do with it, plus finally we're, we know that the early Christians tended to Uh, be more compassionate toward uh, sufferers because there were endless earthquakes, famines and so on in all of these areas. And uh Julian the Apostate, the guy that wanted to restore paganism and did officially, he he complained, you know, why don't our pagan priests uh, get involved and help the the plague victims like these damn Christians do? They get in the trenches, our guys run for the hills, and uh, so let's, you know, try to imitate them. Well, that, you know, that's automatically going to create new members, and so there's there several attested and quite plausible factors that led to Christianity's eventual dominance, though even at that it took many centuries. And there was, there, as Ramsey McMullen points out in Christianizing the Roman Empire and so on, that you had the centuries of, of peaceful coexistence between Christians and pagans in the military, for instance. Uh, there was not It wasn't like all pagans hated all Christians and vice versa. And so uh, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. And the irony to me is that people like uh, J.P. Holding, he wrote some book called uh, The Impossible Faith, uh, saying that the odds against Christianity succeeding in human terms it, it are so high it must have taken a miracle N- not at all and to to argue that way is insulting to the very religion you're trying to defend like the plain secular facts of it uh, should be a cause of great pride mm-hmm. to christians
0: but mm-hmm. no let's
1: make it repulsive and say it was a miracle at the, it don't take a miracle for anybody to be a christian and, and you're a christian <laughs> arguing this
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, there was also the simple twist of fate that the mother of the emperor, Constantine, was a Christian, and I think she's responsible for a whole lot of problems.
1: Yeah, it appears that Constantine did not convert to Christianity, but was raised Christian. Because these stories about the Milvian Bridge and conquer by this, they're like four stories, two from Eusebius, two from uh, pagan writers, and even in Eusebius, in one version – the whole thing is about how they came to adopt the Cairo uh, standard, uh, the monogram, uh, as their, their battle standard. And then there's another story he tells about how he became a Christian at this climactic event. It's pretty obvious. You can see the story growing in the telling. Uh, so he didn't convert to it, probably. Uh, it was just, you know, you happen to get a Christian on the throne. Yeah,
0: and then his mother goes out and finds enough pieces of the True Cross to sink a modern modern day aircraft carrier.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and biblical archaeologists are still following the same plan. Well, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah must have been around here somewhere. Oh, you found some ruins. That's it, and uh, that's now passed away. Except among apologists, it's biblical archaeology's just complete change. It's like the Book of Mormon, where. The poor Mormons desperately try to show traces of the mythical Nephites civilization. Uh, no, there no. aren't any, uh, and the same thing trying to find some sort of evidential basis for uh, a, a United Kingdom of Israel and Judah uh, Solomon Temple. Yeah, forget it. No, no trace of the Exodus, uh, where there would have to be big ones, and uh, that's just evaporated now.
0: Well, you know, there's a fascinating little little snippet in John Malala's Chronicle where he refers to the Temple of Baalbek as the Temple of Solomon. And that was, what, 5th century, 6th century?
1: Wow. I yeah. never heard that. Wow. Oh,
0: yeah. I came across that. I was reading through it re- very carefully at one point, and I, and I read that, and I said, hey, wait a minute. Is Everybody, the way he wrote it was as though... Everybody in that time understood that the Temple of Solomon was Baalbek.
1: Wow, because mm. yeah, otherwise you got a lot of explaining to do. Was was it just reduced to atoms? Uh, did, did the Babylonians use a nuclear weapon against it? Because uh, you, you'd have to have some sort of uh, remnants. The...
0: Well, there's another something I read. I think it was just yesterday. I think it was. Uh, Who was it? Um, uh, Anyhow, somebody mentions the fact that there was a theory, and it was by one of the earlier biblical critics, and I don't know whether it was Strauss or Weiss or who, but he had the idea that uh, the original Jerusalem was not where Jerusalem is, but it was in northern Syria.
1: Hmm, i've never heard that fascinating
0: yeah and i and i can i marked it I, I made a I made a note in the book so that i could find it when i oh. went back to so I'll, I'll have to go back and look at it and see what it was but it was if if that's the case and and he said part of his theory was that after the uh so-called babylonian exile you know nobody really knew where jerusalem was nobody really knew anything and they all just just came back and they you know, and they were gonna go in one place and rebuild a temple and the natives kicked them out so they found this place down where Jerusalem now exists and, and built it all afresh there and then and there was there's nothing there that ever was anything uh according to the ancient history of Israel.
1: Hmm. Yeah, let me know uh where you you read this. I'd love to to
0: yeah, I'll I'll, I'll I'll dig it out. I'll if if does Joe have an email? To yeah. yeah, So I'll 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 dig it up and and send you the reference. Oh, um,
1: terrific.
2: So so Bob, what I'm getting from what you've been saying there is that um, to a certain extent uh, Christianity it could still be a religion today. Or Uh, some kind of a spiritual faith and people can still hold on to religion as long as they get rid of Jesus and the son of God and stuff, because their tradition, uh, there's a big part of their tradition of the Christian tradition is just to be a a do-gooder, you know, go out and do good works. Mm -hmm. And and, I mean, for me, that's fair enough as a, as a, as a unifying kind of principle or uh, ethos for a group of people, everybody to get together and be, be a a do-gooder basically, you know, follow do good works and stuff. But Just in in reference to Jesus and and that part of it that that has, I think, at this point been debunked fairly well, um, what do you see the real problem with people believing in that aspect of Christianity uh, to be? Is there a problem?
1: Uh, you mean if they uh, don't believe in a historical Jesus anymore, or if yeah, or do?
2: no? If they if, if they do that, that part of that I was saying is that is that, that has to people right. But is it just on principle, or do you see a problem with people really adhering to that idea that the teachings are about uh, not necessarily the teachings, but the general idea of Jesus as the Son of God being dying for our sins, going to heaven. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven. Do you see a problem for the world? Let's say since so many people believe that. Bob, he was
0: an altar boy.
1: <clears throat> uh huh. Well, I, uh, I, it seems to me, by and large, Christianity as it exists in the world today is uh, a force for good in many ways. There, there are various conspicuous things about it that. Uh, like the opposition to birth control given the the overpopulation in some places that are uh, probably uh, counterproductive. But it's not like uh, you've got inquisitions and such going on anymore. Mm. They're trying. Uh, on any, well, I, I compare it with uh, militant Islam. I mean, they're the ones you got to worry about. It seems to me there are marginal uh, groups like uh, Christian identity nuts and uh, the Dominionists and Reconstructionists who think that uh, the Old Testament laws should be. Uh, part of the Constitution of the United States, and I mean, but these people mm. are repudiated by most fundamentalists, and uh, they're they're viewed as nuts. And uh, it seems to me that a lot of the stuff about how we got to get back to the Bible, or like people want to post the Ten Commandments in classrooms, they just don't grasp the uh, the issues of, like, you can't have the government telling people to worship the Hebrew God alone. But they're, they're not even really <laughs> thinking of that. They're, they're just thinking of, like, if you said, let's post the golden rule in class, that's really what they're thinking. And uh, that uh, when they say we've got to get back to the Bible, they, conservative uh, political people that say that, they're, they're not really thinking of, like, stoning uh, kids that curse their parents or killing uh, people that promote other religions or not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. They just kind of are thinking of uh, the 1950s. And uh, mm. it seems to me you've got to ask, well, what are they really saying? Because you can't assume they know what they're talking about. Whereas with people that want to impose Sharia law on everybody, uh, that's a whole different shooting match. But uh, I, I'm not too worried about a Christian theocracy. I'm worried about a Muslim one. Um, But Mm. Christianity is almost so benign that it's irrelevant, like anything the pope ever says, any pope. uh, is always just, uh, oh, war is bad, let's not fight. Yeah, yeah, who doesn't know that? Uh, And uh, so it's generally uh, kind of not that much different than humanistic uh, values held by most religions, and, and of course a lot of Muslims too. So that doesn't bother me. I don't really care about winning debates with people. Like I, I was just at a conference with a bunch of atheist uh, leaders, and they have an evangelistic zeal to deconvert Christians or any other theists. I, I don't really feel that way. I, it, there's, it's very difficult to know the truth about history and uh, what happened, uh, uh, what's ultimately true metaphysically, if anything is. And I I can't uh, get too upset that most people really don't have an informed judgment. To me, it's just a question of how they act toward each other, and uh, Mm. I don't see Christianity as particularly pernicious in that regard.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about atheists with a with an evangelistic zeal. You know, I mean, I could say the same thing about some uh, diehard kind kind of scientists. You know, people who believe in uh, Darwinism and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people who work in NASA, for example. Uh, you know. It seems that religion can be kind of anything for for people. It's it's something that you really really believe in. It doesn't necessarily have to be spiritual. Well, there's it nothing be... wrong with yeah. Darwin. No, I know, but I mean the whole. Oh yeah,
0: uh, I know what you're saying. The, 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 the they get
2: it's, it's the scientific materialism scientific that came out of it. Scientific materialism, basically, that anti-spiritual, yeah. basically, that that people who believe that and you know as, as strongly, and it's a belief as strong as as a, a person's religious belief in in a, in a mainstream religion. Uh, so you can you can be a really strong believer in, in non-spirituality and you can be a really strong believer in spirituality and you uh, and you get your jollies. Both people get their jollies from that belief, it seems not necessarily from the, 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 the actual details of it, you know, I mean, it's just I'm a part of this group that all believe something and we're happy about that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it's clear to me that whatever the facts of the matter are, and I am in no position to judge, that the whole climate change thing has become a, right. a, a, a religion. I mean, For they example. may be right. I I'm, I have no idea, and I suspect mm-hmm. it's another uh, hoax of which there have been many. Uh, but uh, it's, it's obvious that there are heresy hunts. There are... Uh, attempts right. to silence the opposition. Why do you have to do that if you're so confident uh, in it? And uh, so mm-hmm. it's, you're right. I mean, there there are people that make sports teams a religion. Right. The Grateful Dead. I mean, there's a cult <laughs> devoted to, to these guys. It's a mindset, like you're saying, with the authoritarians, though right. this is a bit different, but just fill in the blank.
2: Mm. So. What is your, Bob, uh, well, if it's not too personal a question, I mean, you used to be a, a, a Christian, an evangelical, a Baptist, and, and now you're not, and um, you're engaged in the work that you're engaged in, which is debunking, basically pulling the, the foundations out from under Christian Christianity and the Bible. Um, do you, have you maintained any kind of a spiritual belief? And if so, does it have a structure? What is it? Who's your God?
1: Uh, I have not. I I feel like the to me the big thing is seeking character growth and uh, growing in wisdom and maturity. In fact, I think there's very little in um, uh, spirituality descriptions that could not just as well be translated into trying to mature and uh, and become a, a better person and more morally disciplined and so forth. I I think the, there is an aesthetic part of spirituality where you're trying to kind of decenter yourself and your your preoccupation with ego and to be open to the the beauty and wonder and mystery of the world and if you want to call that spirituality and it's a huge semantic debate that I uh i'm all for i i think just thinking of astronomy it's just so humbling and dwarfing and and so forth it does create a sort of a sense of the numinous that there's something that is so beyond us we we feel like uh, it's like in the psalm Psalm eight, i think uh, when i consider the heavens the the works of thy hands the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained what is man that thou art mindful of him well, with a God concept, uh, to me, that stifles that wonder mm-hmm. uh, to say that they are the work of somebody's hands. But I I agree with the basic sentiment of it. It, it must cause you to s- stand back and wonder at this of, of the universe and of our modest place in it. And so that kind of seeking of perspective... I guess overlaps spirituality, or maybe it's a kind of spirituality. But I want to cultivate that, and and I do mm. experience some. Of it. I find listening to Pink Floyd sometimes uh, as that uh, that effect, mm-hmm. or, a, or certain poetry, or uh, symphonic music. I remember going into uh, uh, the the uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I'd always been skeptical about non-representational art. Well. Turn the corner and there is, uh, filling the wall, is this Jackson Pollock painting called One. And I just sat down in front of that for, for 20 minutes, gazing at it. And I felt like I was looking into a portal to another reality. It was just, it somehow, in some zen-like fashion, uh, the, the thing was composed so as to, I guess, be like a mandala or something. It it just sort of mm. hypnotizes you. Well that I would regard as a spiritual experience, though I'm making no literal metaphysical claims about it and I don't right. think a deity had anything to do with it, but it has that decentering um aspect. Woe is me, I am undone. Mm. Yeah. Well,
2: it sounds to me like you've got the basis of a good religion there.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Sign me up.
2: <laughs> no, but I agree. I I think you made an important point there. That um, and I and I think that's maybe the answer to the question that I was kind of asking you about uh, the problems with Christianity and uh, and Jesus is that it's the limiting factor of, a, of imposing it on one person or one God and giving even that God a human form. And it I think that limits people's the potential for many people's many believers, uh, spiritual real spiritual growth, which I think is closer to what you just described.
1: Well, in fairness, I, th- there are certain things that, like the idea that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus that sounds like you've got this one person and it narrows the focus. And yet if you think about this for a second, how can Jesus still as a person, even if he's invisible and inaudible, How I think it's like an imaginary playmate kind of thing, but if you envision these millions of Christians all having this chat with Jesus every day, What kind of an individual personality can do that? It's like uh, asking how Santa Claus can get down Mm. millions of chimneys in a single night. It's a big clue that you're not really thinking what you think you're thinking. Uh, You're you're really talking about (laughs) plugging into some kind of a vague, uh, undefined. uh, What about this makes it Jesus? They just use that name, which also Mm. happens to be the name of this (laughs) biblical character but it's, well, it's
2: what's a feeling right
1: yeah that it just evaporates i guess is what i'm saying so it might not be as restrictive as it uh, uh as it uh, sounds
2: yeah. well it reminds me of uh, laura with her evangelical background as often mentioned um the kind of uh, evangelical kind of hoedowns or whatever what were they call get-togethers or evangelical tent meetings where there would be lots oh, yeah, of uh, spe- speaking in tongues and people falling down and apparently having strong emotional kind of ecstatic experiences. And that's what people want from religion, right? I mean, that's as, almost as good as it gets. You go and you come back floating on a cloud from your meetup. Well, I, you have
0: to, I have to tell this story. <clears throat> as part of this particular church that I attended way back when, my babies were very, very small. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, I just, you know, we joined the church, and I was going to get baptized and so forth. And uh, so I got baptized, and then of course, once you get baptized, then they want you to get tongues, right?
1: Oh
0: yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, so they got all these people gathering around with their hands on me, and you know, they're shaking and they're praying, all this stuff's going on, and they're blah blah blah, and they, and nothing was happening. I mean, it just wasn't happening. It just didn't happen. And so I felt like a complete failure. Well, anyhow, there was one of the older ladies of the church, and I went to visit her one day. And, you know, she was one of the ones that who was always speaking in tongues, always speaking in tongues. <clears throat> and I said to her, I, you know, I, I asked her, I says, well, you know, what what happens? And she, you know, she tried to describe it, and she was a, kind of at a loss for words. And finally I says, well, can you tell me how it feels? You know, because, I mean, if this was something really terrific, I wanted it, right? Mm-hmm. And she says, well, she says, and she looked right and left, make sure nobody was listening. And she says, I have to tell you that she says, it feels kind (laughs) of (laughs) carnal. There's the secret. And right then, you know, the warning bells went off in my head. And I said, wait a minute here. You know, what are these people doing?
2: Well, you're getting a direct experience of Jesus, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
0: the marriage supper
1: of the lamb.
0: Right, no yeah. doubt, but uh, that was towards the end. There, I mean, I did, I didn't last long in that milieu. I think it, I think it lasted about a year. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I yeah, attended
1: an Assemblies of God church for a couple of years, and uh, I never really felt the uh, the magic either. And and I wonder, you know, they say that uh, they can coach you into speaking in tongues, which makes right. me wonder if it's not just a sort of ritual, by rote mm. thing with many people. And uh, in fact, uh, Irenaeus tells us about Marcos, the magician, the disciple of Simon Magus who would basically teach his uh, his devotees to speak in tongues in the same rote manner which is an interesting surviving little uh, bit of information and I figure once you you know if this is what you're supposed to be doing well I guess I'm doing it hallelujah
0: <laughs> well we periodically get out our our uh, I guess we have it on a DVD or on a computer file I'll watch this movie Marjo Gortner Oh yeah. yeah, you know. Oh, I mean, great. he sh- he shows you how it's done, and I'm telling you, it's 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 the truth. It really is.
1: Well, in fact, he would in later years uh, go to speak on college campuses and explain, like you say, how it would happen, including the business about being slain in the spirit and falling down on the floor and so on. And he would say, it's purely manipulation, but it works. Can I have a volunteer from the audience? And at this point, he, you know he's not a Christian. He told you that. He told you it was all manipulation. People would get up on the stage and they'd say, in Jesus' name, and wham, <laughs> down they would go. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, These
2: it, are just these are college students. Or yeah. yeah and I, non-believers.
0: I can yeah. remember...
2: Well, when you see that kind of thing, it's not it starts to become kind of obvious why or easy to, understand, easy to understand why religion takes hold if people yeah. are going around doing well, that kind of thing, you
0: know? There's some psychologist out in California, and I think his name is Schmookler, and he has a theory about what he calls endoskeletons and exoskeletons. Mm-hmm. And endoskeletons are people who are able to uh, find some kind of spirituality within themselves, you know, something like what you were just describing a while ago. But then there are exoskeletons, people who need a structure imposed on them from the outside because they're so afraid that if they don't have one, they're going to do something bad. Ah, and yeah. yeah, so he 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 wrote a really interesting article about it. Of course, it was geared, uh, it was geared towards. You know, kind of reconciling uh, the political right and left uh, because there were a lot of right wingers who were fundies, and so it, it took on religious overtones and so forth. But it was a it was a very interesting uh, an interesting idea that some people do need that structure; they do need that uh, somebody to tell them what they have to do to be righteous.
1: Yeah, and that's,
0: and that's, they don't that's trust uh,
1: themselves.
0: Right. And, uh... Exactly.
2: They don't have their se- a, a kind of internal sense of authority, if you know what I mean. Uh, and that's why I think that ties in with Bob Walthamare's authoritarians, that they're looking always uh, outside of themselves for an external authority, be it government, be it, you know, it can be from the local level right up. And it obviously includes God as the ultimate authority, you know, uh, and other people who maybe have, for whatever reason, have a sense of their own authority are more able to kind of uh, give, you know, sh- kind of shrug off that, uh, uh, external authority and rely on their own devices um, especially when <clears throat> the authority that they maybe looked to previously uh, is shown to be you know corrupt or evil or or, or wrong and it but the people who, who need that authority it doesn't matter how corrupt the authority becomes they will always make excuses they become apologists essentially for in the same way you have a biblical apologists you have a you know corrupt government apologists
1: etc oh you, know. you bet yeah that, that is so true. I, I find it. Uh, I mean, it's obvious that uh, there there are political conservatives who are secular fundamentalists, even if they're not uh, explicitly Christian, and so on. But it seems equally evident to me that uh, that many political liberals have a, a, a kind of a fact proof naivete that they think, well, they've got this progressivist, reformist agenda and let the chips fall where they may. It it doesn't occur to them that uh, you're going to, like Margaret Thatcher said, you're eventually going to run out of other people's money. Oh, no, Mm. it's the right thing to do. So, you know, full speed ahead. And then once the results begin to prove disastrous, they'll find some uh, other, some excuse as to why things are going wrong. They're Their uh, assumptions are invulnerable, and uh, there's -hmm. there's no room for correction. And I call it political snake handling. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. just an absolute faith position. And Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to be that way to be liberal. You don't have to be that way to be conservative. And there are notable examples of both, but you can sure see when people have this, this inviolable faith as the basis, which is pretty dangerous on the left or the right
0: right i would like to take a a few minutes of our last half hour to talk about one of my favorite topics pink floyd uh well nah not pink floyd but uh the apostle paul i love paul and i see paul dealing with a lot of things and i think paul got a really bad rap and i think a lot of people went in there and messed up with his letters and i think Uh, David Trobisch's idea was a very interesting idea, that maybe it was Polycarp that did it. And, uh, you know, I just, I think Paul was real, and I think Paul invented Christianity, and I think he invented it in a way that it it was twisted, and that's just what I think. But, you know, I mean, I know that you wrote this amazing Colossal Apostle, and by the time you got done with it, there wasn't very much of Paul left. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I was thinking, well wait a minute. And I, and I and I probably have notes all through it. Like, well wait a minute, somebody else did that. Somebody else did that. That wasn't Paul. <laughs> Paul didn't say that. You know, somebody added that.
1: But that's you know, kind of it. my point that we that the historical Paul is like a historical Jesus. There are a lot of uh Hands in this thing, and uh, that we we have rival Pauls like we have rival Jesuses even within the New Testament, so you, you're often hearing a debate about a debate between Paulinists uh, who see different implications of of certain doctrines which may ultimately have been those of Simon Magus the, the way Irenaeus described Simon about salvation by grace and not good works and so forth uh, isn't there somebody else that says that, Irenaeus? Uh, it, it, he uh, immediately associates it with Simon Magus, whom uh, uh, he, they all considered, uh, the apologists considered him the fountainhead of heresy. Well, uh, when you look at who the heretics claimed as their father, it was Paul, and, and my uh Thinking is that both of them were right because they're two names of the same guy, and there are other reasons to think that, as F. C. Bauer pointed out, the way uh, Simon Magus seems to stand for Paul in both the Book of Acts, where you have an attempt to reconcile the Catholicized Paul of the Pastoral Epistles with uh, the radical Gnosticizing Paul, and uh, that you see in Galatians and and so forth, and uh, that. of, that you've uh, you, you can see on other grounds in other texts that there's some kind of identification between the two characters.
0: Well, I, it's I would all
1: very speculative, of course.
0: Oh, I would I would suggest that possibly the author of Acts uh, was using names and little vignettes from uh, Josephus to. You know to create things, to write things, and maybe even some of the other earlier Christian authors were doing the same thing because there was the uh, the Simon the magician and, and and who was he was the uh, there was one that was a friend of the Roman governor who married Drusilla and yeah. persuaded her to leave her husband and then there was another Simon mentioned in the story in Acts about the uh, the Governor Gall- what, Gallo or Gallio and I think they kind of I think they just were using names and little little story snippets to create stuff and that later on, you know, for example in the Clementine recognitions and so forth, they, you know, that they, they built this up and developed it yep. uh, and that there was there was a Simon and there was a Paul. The only problem is with the only thing is, is that I keep thinking that this little bit in Josephus about this Paulina mm-hmm. and uh, Saturninus, and you know the little the little stories that uh, were rips off rip offs of uh, Tacitus, mm-hmm. I st- I keep thinking that Josephus was trying to tell us something, and about I don't.
1: Christianity in particular.
0: Yeah, I think he was trying to tell us something. It, I mean the, the testimony. Forget that. Just erase that. That's that's irrelevant. That's that's false, fraudulent, whatever. But those other two stories are really, really interesting, and especially since when you consider that they were placed in the context, and the testimony was also placed in the context of nineteen A.D., not twenty nine, thirty, twenty seven, or whatever. It was nineteen and that you know if if you read carefully those those previous two or three chapters you come to the overwhelming conclusion that this time period that he's talking about here was the time of the death of germanicus and it was not later as and I, and i don't i think uh, i think pilate went out as soon as tiberius came to the throne and i think he left uh as soon as Germanicus died, and I think when they say that he was sent back, I don't think he was sent back to Tiberius and that Tiberius was dead when he arrived back, because two tiny little changes, two tiny little text changes adds 11 years to the text. Mm. Just two. And it just, you know, I've read over and over and over and over, and I mean, I've I've marked up the copy so much that you can hardly read it anymore, but I am convinced that, that this this is situated in 1980, and that Pontius Pilate was never, never, in Judea in the time in the time when he was supposed to have been. It, it, he was there until 1980, and he left. And the person who died was Germanicus, not
1: Tiberius. You got to write this up.
0: Well, yeah, one day.
1: Yeah, but it's you just. Should.
0: It's it's driving me nuts, and I'm I'm convinced, and I think I can I think I can show it, I think I can demonstrate it just from the just from the text itself, and especially when you consider that one of the texts involved in this whole story is one that is drawn from a tale that occurred in what was it 58 A.D. the the Paulina story that's a 58 A.D. story, but then he immediately reverts to this hokey story about these these this one guy. This one Jew who was helped by three other Jews to defraud this Fulvia woman. And remember, Fulvia was originally the, the the wife of Clodius, and then she was the wife of Mark Anthony. And she was the one who engineered the funeral of Clodius, and then she engineered, undoubtedly, the funeral of Julius Caesar, which was, you know, basically the model on which the passion play is made. Hmm. So, is I mean... This uh,
1: figure into the book... Uh, Jesus with Caesar?
0: He talks about the, the passion play. Yeah, that's what he... His his whole thing is... Uh, I don't think he's, you know, 100% right, but um, he definitely has something there when he starts talking about Clodius and his funeral, and then Caesar and his funeral, and the fact that the image of Caesar was raised up on the trophium, which rotated so that all the people could see the body with all the wounds on it, wow. because... Uh, you know the, the the interesting thing was was that Mark Anthony, being a what do they call him a Flamin, he, a priest, uh, couldn't look upon a dead body, so he obviously couldn't look upon the body of Caesar, which was on a bier inside a um, like a little miniature temple thing. And but what he did was was he had Caesar's robe that he'd been stabbed in. And you know what? Where where else does the robe come into play? And he has. Uh, a wax image, which was fairly typical for a Roman funeral, usually they used masks and actors, but in this case, they used a wax image raised up on a trofeum, which is a cross type figure. I mean you see him on Roman mm. coins, you see him in all kinds of Roman imagery so he's got Caesar with his twenty three wounds on his body, and he's declaiming and waving this robe around you know and 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 reciting uh uh from a, a a Greek play uh did i did I save them that they should do this to me did i did I forgive them that they should do this to me? you know all of these things are supposed to be the voice of Caesar of course and uh wow you know so it's
1: it's yeah, it's really amazing this.
0: and then the other thing is that there's so many little details in in uh in the gospel of Remi- if you really have read. A hundred biographies of Caesar, which I have. Wow! Uh, you see, and all the original texts relating to Caesar, which I have, because I love Caesar. Um, huh. you—I mean, the the saying, "He who is not against us is with us." Hmm. That's Caesar said that. Really? You know the miracle. Oh yeah, that was that was Caesar. And then the, the, there was also a temple incident. There was a triumphal entry. There was um, with people waving the palm branches, the whole nine yards. There was uh, the crossing of the Rubicon, you know, a.k.a. baptism in the Jordan. Uh, he, he's got Miracle of the Loaves and Fishes where, you know, he, he was in a rough place when he was over there chasing after Pompeii. And what his soldiers were eating were was bread made out of ground up roots dug out of the ground. So they were managing to enable an army to survive with, with no supplies. And there was a big issue about it because they threw some of these uh, kinds of bread over into the camp of Pompey, And Pompey had his uh, his his men gather it up and hide it because he didn't want his soldiers to see the kind of men that they were fighting against because they were, they were so savage they could live on something like that and that they ah. would be frightened. Ah. Uh, so they're – you know so there's so many interesting interesting parallels that um i i just uh i just think that there's something very definite to that and uh i think it it's something that really could be looked into by somebody yeah, who is wow. more more technically proficient than i am i mean i'm just kind of like an amateur here looking at all this stuff but but i love caesar uh, <laughs> god i love him
1: I've got an old beer stein on the mantle in back of me that has uh, portraits of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Charlemagne. I, I love it. Uh, those are some of my favorites.
0: Oh yeah. Well, if if you want to read a really good biography of Caesar, there's there's lots of them. There's so many. There's Gelter's and there's uh, but my favorite is Arthur Kahn's. and uh, it, it's just a beautiful a beautiful book. I mean, that's 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 if you want to have like a, something where there's, he's being a little more creative. If you want just the facts, I mean, you can get just the facts with Gelzer. But, you know, all of these people, even the ones who start out as anti-Caesar, I mean, they describe things Caesar did, and then they talk about, oh, he wanted to be king, and, and that's another thing, he wanted to be king. This was the accusation. He wanted to be king. He he was going to, but that's not true. It's not even true. But that was the accusation supposedly made against Jesus, right?
1: Yeah, right. Huh.
0: I mean, there are so many parallels. You'll just, I mean, once you look into it, I think you'll just fall flat on the floor and you'll say, "Oh my God!" <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no,
1: hallelujah!
0: <laughs> hallelujah! Yeah. <laughs> can I get but it, yeah, can I get a witness? But anyhow, we it was about Paul. I think I love Paul, too, but, you know, for a while, I thought he was schizophrenic.
1: Hmm. Yeah, some people said epileptic for a long time. but
0: Well, yeah, he's but I don't voices,
1: think I guess that would be schizophrenic. But no. He, he
0: no, he's not hearing voices. Remember that came from. You have to completely forget about Acts. You have to completely yes, forget so about the Gospels. Novel. You have to completely throw them away. I mean, that's you can't even. Re, and and these people, I mean, Gerd Ludemann. I mean, for crying all night. He's so good. But then, he refers to Acts, and I say, wait a minute, what are you doing? You can't yeah. do that. It's that not is allowed.
1: Astounding. Yeah, ah. he, he says we gotta set that aside and then immediately turns right around and uses it as the basis for uh, for the uh, this whole treatment of Paul I think he seems to reject the implied chronology of acts like John Knox did in a book called chapters in the life of Paul he comes up with very similar results there but then he he uh, brings a whole lot of it right back in I, I don't know how he doesn't
0: Well, you know, if this whole Pontius Pilate business, which, by the way, came about because of Ignatius, he's the one who said Jesus lived in the time of Pontius Pilate, but if that was in 1980, which I am convinced it was, uh, and I don't think it was – I'm not saying that Jesus was in the time of 1980, but the Pontius Pilate was, and if that's Uh, the case, then that that opens up the whole timeline – for Paul, and I also think that 9, 10, and eleven, of Romans, if they are authentic, were written after the destruction of Jerusalem. And yeah, then later, I
1: think so too. Their, their again, table has become a snare to them, and so on.
0: Yeah, and then they're,
1: they're,
0: right. and there's somebody else. Who was it? Um, oh, what's this other guy's name? That uh, about the authentic letters of Paul?
1: F. C. Bauer.
0: No, no, not Bauer. He's more recent. Uh, he wrote a really fat book. Anyway, what the heck was his name? Douglas Douglas Campbell. Is that his name? Douglas Campbell. Yeah, he did it. He 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 rehabilitated. Believe it or not, he rehabilitated the ten letters, and he created an order form. And it's a really compelling argument. Because you know, I was a conf- I was a confirmed, you know, possibly there were only four authentic letters and they were heavily redacted and then I fluctuated between that and seven letters, you know, according to the Westar people, and da 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 and I was back and forth, back and forth. And then this guy goes through it, you gotta read it. It's I'm pretty sure it's Douglas Campbell, um, uh something about Paul. Anyway. Uh the thing is, is that <clears throat> what uh what I think is, is that uh, Paul, if he wrote three chapters, if Paul wrote it, of Romans after the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, none of these timelines that these people have been coming up with have anything at all to do with history. And if that's the case, there's a possibility that this appearance of of this strange Christus uh, hubbub that happened in 49 A.D., could have been the appearance of Paul in Rome.
1: Yeah, yeah, that uh, cause I find it laughable when people say, "Oh, that's a reference to uh, to Jesus." Uh, what are you kidding? When how on earth do you do you place uh, him there? Uh, it, it would make a bit more sense this way.
0: Well, if it, I mean, if it was, then you've got um, first of all, you've you've put. The beginning of his experience, and and he never had any kind of visionary experiences. He tells you clearly in his letters how he came up with his his Jesus idea or his Christ. I think every time the word Jesus is in the in the letters of Paul, somebody has added it in there, because I don't think he ever talked about Jesus. I think he all, only ever talked about a Christ spirit that he extracted or derived or exegetified. Out of the out of the Hebrew Scriptures, you know, it was something yeah. that had to be. It was it was the the Sky Man, you know, the cosmic. Uh, what that's what Hugh Schoenfeld calls it. He calls it the Sky Man, and that he extracted it from the Scriptures. And if you have this wide open period in which he could have lived, you've got a lot of of lot of uh, looking at other history to find traces and tracks, and I think the only authentic track of Christianity is that mention of that hubbub that happened in 49 where the Jews were expelled from Rome because of this hubbub over what they call Christus. Mm -hmm. And I think that the other bit in Tacitus was a complete interpolation. He never would have made a mistake and called him a procurator when he was something else.
1: Prefect.
0: Prefect, yeah. So that's what i think i think paul was in rome in 49 and i think he was making it because he had he what happened was he went to rome and the same problems that had been hounding him they had been hounding him these these uh these zealots these Zadokites, these uh what do you call them these uh, uh asc- ascetic uh revolutionaries that were trying to recruit for their for their big push against rome you know they just followed him and, and that's what that's what i think they were all about they weren't about creating a Christian church. I think they were about recruiting uh, people for their rebellion. I think they were all a bunch of rebels.
1: Uh could be Schoenfield thinks it's the other way around, though, and that James and the gang were uh, zealot revolutionists, but uh, I guess there's some basis for all of these theories. But, yeah, yeah the... well,
0: I like to call them the James gang, too, myself. You know. <laughs> well, and I think they were. I mean, they were, they were a gang of revolutionaries, and they had maybe some guy that died, and they they kept telling their buddies that, you know, hey, our guy, uh, he, he died, he appeared to us, and he's going to come back and bring God and all the angels and the bombs and, and lightning bolts and so forth, and all you guys got to do is, you know, hold fast there in the temple and let's resist the Romans, and if we keep doing it hard enough and long enough and strong enough, you know, God's going to come and, and uh, you know, help us out here, and, and it got everybody killed, and I think that was – that was what Paul addressed when he wrote those three chapters in Romans. You know, my God, you know, he was trying to go against this. He was trying to share the Jewish God with the Gentiles and get the Jews to stop being so cranky and separatist, you know, kind of big reconciliation thing. And it failed. That's what I think hmm. at the moment. <laughs> at the moment. Back yeah, that, that could change. change.
1: Yeah, we well, always got to be
0: open to that. But <coughs> yeah, but anyhow, struggling. that's why I was, I love this book, The Amazing Colossal Apostle. It's really, <laughs> it's really great.
1: I'm oh, glad you like it.
0: And I've got all my all my little notes here in the margins and stuff. And you know what else I like? I like it's because you translate things. I hate it when people don't translate things.
1: Oh, yeah, what a pain. Oh, yeah.
0: Especially
2: well, he you certainly you've certainly written a lot of books on this topic. Uh, a
0: stack, a big stack. Oh uh,
2: yeah, I mean. I'm working on six... one
1: now called uh, uh, "Holy Fable: The Bible Undistorted by Faith," which is a kind of a critical introduction to uh, the whole mm. Bible. It's going to be pretty hefty. Wow, you,
0: you did that uh, version of the Bible too, didn't you?
1: I've uh, got the a big, pre-Nicene New Testament Yes, and then, yes
0: yeah. yeah, I've got that one too, that big fat one
1: Yeah, the Bible like block.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that <laughs> The Bible undistorted by faith
1: Yeah That's, yeah, uh, yeah. that's, a,
2: that's, a, that's a provocative title
1: <laughs> Yeah, because everybody <laughs> reads it uh, through these uh, thick lenses of faith and what it has Absolutely. to mean It's one big proof text and uh, maybe not uh, Yeah,
0: I don't think the people who are believers should be allowed to receive degrees in New Testament, Old Testament, or any kind of biblical scholarship. I think it should be a prerequisite that they are not believers in order to get these degrees, especially, especially since, you know, uh, universities that are funded by public money and so forth are, are paying their salaries. I, I think that, uh, I think that should be an exclusionary principle because look at how many people have lost their positions because they lost their faith.
1: Yeah, yeah. poor uh, Michael Icona dared suggest in a massive book on why the resurrection really did happen, that uh, the Matthew thing with the the saints rising from the dead at the crucifixion and then showing up in Jerusalem as if it was uh, Stephen King's pet cemetery, uh, that uh, (laughs) this might be – uh, allegorical or something he really caught it and uh, wow. uh, they were going to take away his uh, evangelical membership card and then he quickly backed down and said ah, I guess I shouldn't have said that and it'll be gone from future editions uh, poor guy mm-hmm. I've met wow. him and I, I I think he's sincere though I think wrong but the poor guy the minute he starts to think independently or even a very small thing uh, he's he's in big trouble
0: Well, look how they went after Gerd Ludeman. Look what they did to Tom Brody. Look what they did to, you know, all the people in the past. Uh, what, what is his name? Strauss and Ramirez. All those people. I mean, they just, they, they destroy their lives. And it's, it's, uh, it's really a pity bit. I think that what you're writing is going to be a really, a really big service because, uh, I think that people who believe should not be allowed to become experts in a topic.
1: Yeah, maybe they could uh, teach in seminaries, which are just training uh, facilities <clears throat> for uh, vocational things for the ministry. you got to know the sacred lore. But like you say, if it's a public university or a non, non-denominationally sponsored, uh, the, then you you might as well, you know, if you're to have these people teaching there, you might as well have uh, Christian science practitioners in medical schools.
0: exactly. I mean, it's the same thing. So, anyway, tell us what you would like to tell everybody if you had, you know, five minutes to tell them.
2: On a giant bullhorn.
0: Yeah. If you could stand on the biggest soapbox in the world, which is not to say our soapbox is anywhere near that. but Might be one day. You never know.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I just feel like uh, we ought to live and let live. We ought to uh, uh live in in peace and put people before uh, ideologies when they will let you do so. And uh, that it's uh, not any of your business what anybody else thinks, though the free exchange of ideas is is a great thing and should benefit everybody. I encourage that. But I suppose just as important, I think, is that – if you are interested in historical questions and of course that's what this old jesus thing comes down to you have to realize you cannot also be a believer you have, Van Harvey wrote a great book, The Historian and the Believer, uh, on the morality of historical knowledge. You can't be rooting for one reading of history to the exclusion of another. Uh, you have to just be interested in finding out what happened, not defending that something happened. And that means uh, you are never entitled to uh, cocksure certainty. You've always got to be open to the possibility that new evidence or new com- compelling readings of the old evidence may surface and therefore that all judgments you make are provisional and tentative and that it seems to me is just absolutely excluded from the stance of the believer from the first step out of the box and so uh keep your uh you know keep, keep the two roles distinct I, I don't know that you can play both of them
2: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> absolutely I don't think so. I don't think so. No, that's
1: So I
0: want to tell our listeners, um, uh, of all of the uh, people who deconstruct the whole Jesus legend, myth that I've been reading for the past few years, Robert M. Price is my favorite. And I wow. want to really encourage everybody to get and read his books and give him <clears throat> nice reviews on Amazon. Absolutely. And uh, – yes
2: his website is robertmprice.mindvendor.com, like that's, he's selling minds, Uh, uh, mindvendor.com, sell (laughs) sell you a new mind, Um, yeah, you're also in a, um, people can watch a little bit of the Brian Fleming documentary that uh, you appeared in, The God Who Wasn't There, I think it's on YouTube, isn't it, or it's on your website anyway?
1: Yes, I'm pretty sure it is.
2: Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty interesting, It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a I didn't see the whole documentary, but and I,
0: he's got he's got lectures and things on YouTube also. Absolutely, and he
2: also hosts the, as you mentioned at the beginning, he hosts the um, uh, regular webcast called the Bible Geek, where apparently, uh, like I said uh, at the beginning, you uh, you patiently you're willing to patiently answer people's questions who so might call in or or send questions in. Yeah,
1: I'll probably and I do another he, one of those today.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: and I think it's a tremendous service that you're doing. Absolutely, and you're. Obviously, despite the fact that you've left the faith, you're a really good Christian. <laughs> oh,
2: in the true, in the true sense.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, you are. very compliment. Yeah.
2: Okay, Bob. Well, well, listen. Thanks a million for for coming on. Uh, thanks again for for coming on. It's been it's been excellent. And uh, yeah, more power to you. And I hope you keep turning out the the truth in the books. Well,
1: it's been a delight to talk with you both.
2: Okay. That's Thank you. Thank all right, Bobby, have, have, have a
0: good day.
1: You too. Have a good day.
2: Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so, folks, we're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, just uh thank you to Bob. And you should check out, like we said, check out his uh, website. It's all very interesting and very ac- accessible. Despite what uh, may seem like it's very accessible, and he writes so clearly, you just have to understand. And very entertainingly,
0: and entertainingly. I mean,
2: look at the titles of his book. You know, the incredible, the incredible shrinking son of man. I mean, that gives you an idea of the the amazing
0: colossal apostle. Yeah,
2: he's even getting. You know,
0: he has a lot of pop culture references. He's he's a real people, but he's got multiple degrees in these topics, and he is very, very good. Absolutely. So
2: check him out. Uh, Bob Price or Robert M. Price as you know on, on, on the web um, yeah so we'll be back next week with another show uh, thanks to Laura and Neil and again to Bob uh, we hope you all have a good evening wherever you are
0: or morning or wherever you are yeah and we'll see you next week yes bye bye